Um, During um, the month of July, we've been looking at the short Old Testament book of Ruth. Lovely story in in many ways of love conquering and so on. But as the very first verse in chapter 1 reminded us, it's a story that it's said in the time of the judges. And that was a barren time in Israel's history. It was a time of violence, a time of... um, atrocities, a time of godlessness. Indeed, as the book of Judges finished, uh, at the end of chapter uh, 21 in Judges, in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It was the rule of the jungle, and it was lawlessness. And then on top of that bad situation, to that was added the tragedy of famine. And even in Bethlehem, (coughs) where uh, Naomi's family were from, which means, Bethlehem means house of bread. Even there, there was no bread then in the house of bread. And then on top of that, there was the disobedience and the tragedy as uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, took the family to Moab, where he shouldn't have. There he died. There he and Naomi's two sons died, leaving Naomi a widow and also her daughters-in-law, both widows. And then when Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem, She told her two widowed daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. That was their homeland. They would maybe find someone else to marry and settle down. And while Orpah did so, Ruth pledged herself to go with Naomi. Not just was she Naomi's daughter-in-law now, she now, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, she now shared the same faith as uh, Naomi and would go with her. It was the first breakthrough, the first light, really, that came after all the tragedy um, in the beginning of chapter 1. More godliness was seen in chapter 2 when Boaz uh, provided for Ruth and Naomi a reflection of God's attitude and action towards His faithful people. And then last Sunday in chapter 3, we saw how Naomi and Ruth put a plan together that amounted to a proposal for Boaz to marry Ruth. A proposal not based on romantic courting, but on Israelite customs, customs of near relatives stepping in to keep the family name and the family unit and the family property within that family. It was customs based on God's law, and it might be, they might be customs that seem strange to us, but they were ways of protecting the vulnerable. They were ways of ensuring that over time no great inequality arose between people who had so much and others who had nothing. And they were ways of protecting the building block of society, the family unit. So while we might think of some of the customs that we read in the book of Ruth as a bit primitive, a bit too prescriptive, a bit unromantic, people in glass houses, for we do not criticize them from a place where we live in a world that has protected the vulnerable or kept inequality of bay or protected the key building block of society, family life. And given that we haven't done those things as a society, we should maybe be less turned off by what goes on in the book. But while Boaz was a near relative of uh, Naomi, um, verse 
12 of chapter 3, Boaz was a man of integrity, as we'd seen throughout the book, and he was determined to do what was right and fair. And so there was a closer relative, and so in chapter 4, the passage that Ali read this morning, Boaz explains the situation to this relative, giving him the chance to be the guardian redeemer. Now, the guardian redeemer was a provision made in in Israelite law for a male relative to step in where uh, none was, was with a family, as was the case with Naomi and Ruth, in order to provide for them, in order that they would have a home to belong, in order that they could have a future, and indeed, in order that they could be part of a family unit. And that guardian-redeemer role might even include, um, in the example or instances of where there was a childless widow, um, that might include taking uh, um, the childless widow in marriage and having family with her. Now, at first, the relative, chapter 4, who's not named, at first he thinks, oh yeah, why not? He's a bit of land that's become available. He's a good monopoly player. He can see the possibilities of houses and hotels going up. And Yeah, this is grand. I'll, I'll have that, he says. Uh, yes, says Boaz, but there's the matter of Naomi and Ruth, you see. Because part of the guardian-redeemer deal is that you then have to take them on board. And Ruth is a childless uh, widow. So someone would have to marry her and and have family. And then the guy thinks, well, okay, I'm getting an extra bit of land, but I'm also having to take on maybe more family, and therefore there will be more uh, children to share out my inheritance. Therefore, the children that I've already got might get less. You know, if Ruth has another five kids, that's another five shares And he thinks, that's not a great business deal here for my wains. And so he says, no. He's acting out of his own interests. We don't think that's strange because that's the world that we live in. But in Israel, with its God-given laws, the family, the community interests were to be put first because that's what love is. And that is one of the huge lessons of these four short chapters in the Old Testament, that love is not something to be defined or described simply in terms of feeling or emotion, romance or attractiveness, but love rather is a settled attitude of care, concern, and provision towards others. Now, when we're brought up in a particular context, it's very hard for us to notice that context. Um, I I don't suppose that a fish is very aware of uh, being in water all the time. The fish doesn't know anything else. That's the way life is for the fish. And in the same way, or in a similar way, we can grow up with values and ways all around us and, and not really notice them. It's the way things are. It's the way things are done. Now, while there was still, for some of the more elderly amongst us here, while there was still a keen sense of duty and responsibility while you were growing up, that largely changed for the baby boomers generation. That's me and the young people like me. Um, 1950s onwards, we were the baby boomers generation. And for the baby boomers and those who have followed that generation, 
we were grown up with much less, we grew up with much less of an emphasis on duty and responsibility. Ways had changed, and we grew up with much more of an emphasis on yourself, and doing what you felt like, doing what seemed right to you, and, and doing seemed what, what seemed good to you. And a lot of the then traditional things associated with authority and, and, and so on, um, respect for the police or whatever, however these things were mentioned, a lot of those things kind of went by the board. And so, in that context of, and we were bombarded by media all around us, telling us that what was best, what was most therapeutic for us as, as individuals was what we should be bound by. And in that context, love became something that suits me, something that made me feel good, something that rewards or excites or enhances me in some way. And so, if a relationship no longer did that, I'm free to go. It's now, that's now so much accepted as part of the way things are that we now have a serial philanderer as prime minister. Don't we? Undeniably so. Love is what suits you at the time. Love is what fine for me at the moment. Or to go to a different aspect, I, I read this week uh, an obituary of the founder of Primark. His own rule, he said, was to make money. And he pursued that with the cooperation of a consumer society. He pursued that with the cooperation of just look after yourself, do what's good for you. And in that context, cheap goods were welcome. That these goods were cheap because of sweatshops in other parts of the world didn't matter to folk. And not even when it was brought to attention a few years back when over 1,000 people in Bangladesh died in one of these sweatshop factories, not even then did it make much of a difference. Look out for number one. Do what feels right. The consequences beyond that do not matter. I have no responsibility to poor suckers in Bangladesh. If they're in a sweatshop, too bad. This is T-shirts too cheap to turn down. That was the attitude of the day. That's why Primark has been so successful. And if you do shop in Primark, I just want to say one word. Don't. Don't. Christians shouldn't shop in Primark. Full stop. Or in the, in the debates about Leadership, I, I noticed a, a friend uh, commenting, and I can't remember the, the source of the quote, a quite well-known quote, that in democracies like ours, we get the leaders that we deserve. Well, that's been true, isn't it? Because we have pursued the lookout for number one, because we have pursued the, what suits me, because we have pursued that short-term look, then... Leaders do the same. 
And I've read numerous places in the past months criticisms of members of parliament for, you know, taking a stand or not taking a stand because they want to keep their jobs or whatever, as if we expect them somehow to be different from the ethos out of which they have come. They are not going to be different out of the context and out of the ethos from which they've come. And if they have been part of a society, and they have, if they have been part of a society that says you don't have to stick to your principles, then that's what we get. There was a magazine article um, a number of years ago when Tony Blair was ceasing to become Prime Minister and Gordon Brown was going to be taking his place. There was a magazine article in which there was a couple of paragraphs that were just oh, vituperative about this, saying how terrible it was, how outrageous it was. People didn't vote for Gordon Brown. They voted for Tony Blair. They're not getting a chance. This is, this is an outrageous affront to democracy, said the writer. Am I the only person who thinks this is a scandal and that this is terrible? This is a bit like Claudius handing over power to Nero. It's shocking, said the writer in the Spectator magazine a certain Boris Johnson. (laughs) Physician, heal thyself, eh? But that's the climate in which people have grown up. That's the society that we've made. Don't worry if the cheap goods come from sweatshops. Don't worry if that this thing's beyond what we, can, what we can see. Don't worry about disposable. Don't worry about principles. Don't worry about sticking to it. Just do it right for yourself. And if you say, where, where, where will that change? As I've already said, it's not going to change from Downing Street. It's not going to change from Parliament. If there's any hope of that changing, it's... it's the role and the calling of the church. It's the role and the calling of the people who say, God doesn't love like that. Therefore, we are not going to love like that. Now, changes of outlook, changes over in culture over time and behavior patterns are seldom, if ever, all bad or all good. And that movement um, post-World War II from a sense of duty and obligation to more of a um, affirm yourself uh, kind of move, that, that move wasn't entirely bad. The previous emphasis on duty and authority meant that there were times when people were still living in so toxic a relationship at danger to themselves and at danger to their dependents. That emphasis on authority and duty and respect and not asking questions allowed huge amounts of abuse to go on undetected. And we're seeing some of the fallout of that now. Fashions, cultures, trends, and society are not where we best find out what love is, Rather, we should go to the Word of God and the example of God for that. And one of the great lessons of the Word of God is that love is not about self-interest, that love is about commitment and service to others. Ruth's commitment to Naomi in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. Boaz's welcome and kindness in chapter 2. Naomi's planning for Ruth in chapter 3. All of these involved risk-taking. All of these involved self-sacrifice. All of these involved putting others' interests first. 
And the issue then is not old-fashioned against new ways. The issue is against what is God's way as opposed to the world's way. But this is God's world, and we are made in the image of God. And there is a coming kingdom that will be entirely and fully godlike. And so we should get our notions about love from Him. This is love, says John uh, in 1 John chapter 4. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. This is love. It's giving. It's doing for the other. And if we want to know what love means in its fullest and richest form, we must be willing for commitment and sacrifice as the price of love. Promised love, covenant love, sacrificial love. Now, is that the love that we believe in? A love that is not merely about the intensity of feeling located somewhere between the brain and the groin, but love which is a mutual commitment to one another. Is that the attitude, the intention, the practice that we take into our relationships? Not simply in Ruth's case of finding a life partner, but our acquaintances, our friendships, our family, and so on. Love, moving, thinking about the other in particular and specific ways. It doesn't have to be just the very grand gestures, and that's what we've been saying from the book of Ruth. From very small beginnings and very simple steps, change came. I've been at the front here in the congregation sometimes and looked out as somebody who's been for the first time is quite obviously lost and they're not sure where to go in the update and so on. And the people standing around them who are regulars just don't bat an eyelid and don't do the first bit to help. Can't tell you how embarrassed I've been when that goes on. But when we just look for ourselves, that's not love. Love says, what can I do for those around me? What can I do and how do I make the moves for others? And God's love reaches beyond the boundaries of what we're familiar with. In both verse 5 and verse 10 of the reading that Ali read, Boaz points out that Ruth is a foreigner, an outsider, a Moabite, the kind of person that the people of Israel had excused themselves from loving. But God's love goes across boundaries, reaches out beyond the safe, the familiar, the those who are like us, the people that we might be favorably disposed towards, the ones that I like. Loving others is how we're to love. And that means specifically and practically. So there should be steps taken that show that that is how we care. So who have you been kind towards? Who have you sought to bless who is outside your usual circle? Who have you been kind towards? Who have you sought to bless who is outside your zone of people you feel safe with? Because unless there are those specific steps, tangible actions, then it's doubtful if we're really loving in God's sense. Now, the book of Ruth has a lot to teach us then about love. Also a lot about faith and the risks of faith. It's a lot to teach us about trusting God, about God reshaping the lives of those who trust and follow Him. 
It's got a lot to teach us about how God reaches into the, the hurting and the sore places of life. And we looked at that in previous weeks. But while we can and while we should learn a lot from the story as we see examples of living the Lord's way, this is also a book, a story with more for us. For this is a story about how the Lord is at work in the world, fulfilling His promises, bringing His love and His salvation to this hurting and broken world. As I mentioned at the beginning, there was so much about the life of God's people at this time that was out of sorts and simply wrong. And the story tells us that our Lord is a God who reaches right into the very sore, the very hurting, the very unfair and unjust, the very emotional hurts. And for anyone who thinks that their life is beyond the reach of such a God, the book of Ruth screams out, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't given up. He will not say, I'm not getting my hands dirty in that kind of way. And the restoration, the change, the signs of hope, Notice that in the book, they did not come from renowned leaders. They didn't come from famous champions, from vaunted celebrities. It was the ordinary folk doing ordinary specific steps of faith and obedience, looking out for others. Here, you have my hymn sheet, I'll find another one. It's that simple specific step that the Lord took and used and blessed. And how he took and used and blessed. I didn't uh, make Ali read all these names in the genealogy in verses 18 to 22. You can give me a fiver afterwards, Ali, for sparing you that. But the main point of them was already made in verse 17. Ruth had a son. Naomi had a grandson. It's good so far gets better. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. Yes, that David. King David. Samus David. David, who reigned over Israel at its greatest time of, of blessing. David, who has written so many of the Psalms that have challenged, encouraged, and moved, and moved this. That David came out of this nobody's story, this Moabite woman on whom so much bad stuff had happened at the beginning. God was working His purposes out, and it got even better because we know that it was from the family of King David that the Messiah Himself came. And if you go to the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Ruth is even mentioned by name. In the history of Jesus, here comes the Messiah. And Ruth has got a part in it. So is Boaz. Yeah, Boaz who had been kind when she was gathering wheat. That Boaz. And he did that not thinking, oh yeah, one day I'm going to be really famous because of this. He was just doing the loving, giving, caring thing. And that's the good news of this book, that we have a God who's at work in the world, a God who is with the ordinary, the otherwise forgotten, the God who will say to his faithful people, the people who will say, no, we're not going to think love is like this, we're going to think love is something else and make us stand for it. Such a God will be with his people and stick by his people 
And that is the kingdom of God that we're moving towards. It's a story about how God can reach in and change things and bring transformation and salvation. The king is coming. The kingdom is coming. And here is a story showing how God can pick up the pieces, how God can do so much more than we have any right to expect. Here is a story about how God's will will not be thwarted, how there are specks of light even in the deepest darkness. And so, when we pray, as we did this morning, your kingdom come, we should pray that not as a thing to say, not as something we have learned to say, but as a positive longing, because we have a God who can do that. We have a God who can say, yes, that kingdom is coming. And your kingdom come is not a general wish for something to be a bit better, a bit more tolerable, but a longing for transformation, for new life, for waters where there has been only desert, for justice where there has been only cruelty, for healing where there has been only disease and death, for wholeness where there has been fragmentation, for beauty where there has been only ugliness, for integration where there has been only dissonance, for substance where there has been only fleeting flimsiness, for toughness where everything seems so soft, for taste where everything seems so bland, for strength where everything seems so weak. That's the kingdom of God, and that kingdom is coming. And when we say, your kingdom come, our horizons are not just to be set on the world out there and the Boris Johnsons of the world and everything else and say, well, there's not much point. Our horizons are to be set on a God who did what he did in the book of Ruth, and a God who says, I can do it again. And a God who says, I will do it again. Because that kingdom is coming. This is our God. He is working to bring to pass such a kingdom, working in and amongst the hearts, working with the ordinary folk who put his ways into practice, working to provide a savior and a salvation that will be beyond our wildest and best imagining. And he says, join in. Come. Ordinary folk like Ruth and Boaz are welcome. Ordinary folk doing the right, the faithful, the loving thing, who together will say, we will do God's will. And his kingdom is coming. Let us pray.